call the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Okay, hi, it's me, Cindy Adams. Same Cindy Adams who harangues you in my column Monday through Thursday, four times a week, every week in the New York Post. You're stuck with me. Sell this and pay attention because despite international, worldly, global efforts to get rid of me, I'm still there and here. Diane von Furstenberg, I want to tell you about. She not only designs clothes, she writes books. Her parents were Auschwitz survivors. Did you know that? Auschwitz survivors. And then she married a German prince. I mean, go figure how that worked out. And she is one who believes in self-help. She told me we all have to, quote, connect. Diane von Furstenberg sent me two emails she sends, the, sends them every morning to benefit someone other than herself. She says in her note to me, we must expand. We must arrange a meeting or weekly call with whoever you don't know or wouldn't normally engage with. She says we must learn to inspire, share experiences, vulnerability, and strength through storytelling. And her third term is advocate, act on causes, rally, speak up, organize, make an impact. I said, what, what do we have to do all this, Diane? How are we going to have time to make a living? She says, listen to me, you have to be in charge. You must make a commitment to yourself. She says, understand, my parents were in Auschwitz and here I am married to someone who's very successful, and I am myself. It's all because we have made an effort. You must trust your character. You must know it is forever the core of your strength. And also, you must help all women be the women they want to be. In her book, which is called Own It, The Secret to Life, she tells about fame. She was, oh, this is funny. She was in Kathmandu, Nepal, where I also was. But she was there on their holy week. She was sitting in a sacred monastery among chanting monks. She was an invited guest. Thus, she was granted a special privilege to personally meet the holiest of holy, their spiritual leader. After bowing, after kissing his fingers, after the introduction, this holy man asked her, So do you know Cher? <laughs> that, that is my story from Diane von Furstenberg. Now, I'm going to tell you one other thing about somebody else's pretty famous. My dear friend, whom I love dearly, Cardinal Timothy Dolan. We both share our love of animals. For 11 years until we had the pandemic, every December I did and supported and paid for a blessing of the animals. We did it every Christmas. We did it at the church on 60th and Park. And 800 people came with 800 dogs, cats, turtles, some idiot brought fish in a bowl. 
we had a we had all sorts of animals, eight hundred of them, and the cardinal would come for the Catholic dogs, and then I had a rabbi who would bless the Jewish dogs. And every November, just this week alone, Radio City amps up its coming Christmas pageant, and Cardinal Dolan arrives every year to bless the animals. And I go with him because I'm his plus one when it comes to blessing the animals. We arrive outside 8.45 a.m. to bless the animals. It's donkeys, sheep, camels, those animals who were present at the birth of Jesus. His eminence shook hands with each cop, each photographer, each shivering rockette whose etiquette was to pirouette in about two inches of fabric. His eminence said, The greatest place holiday time is New York, and in the whole world, nothing's more excited than Radio City Music Hall. Okay. The lobby had coffee and don't Danish set up for us. Our archbishop took out a bottle of sanitizer from his coat pocket, rinsed off his mouth, his hands, and then he turned to me. Being my friend, being we share a love for animals, I'm his annual companion. He then introduced me to all the executives at Radio City as, quote, this is my friend Cindy, the only one I know who's around long enough to have actually been in the manger. And now I'm going to have a station break. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. And now I'm about to be talking to my longtime friend, Morgan Freeman, about what he's doing specially, and it's this Coming Tuesday, November 9, the History Channel will premiere an eight-part series with Morgan Freeman. It's a rough, tough series. It's nonfiction, and the Oscar winner hosts it. He also executive produced it. The title is Great Escapes. Listen, we are talking of prison escapes, tough ones like those in Alcatraz, Danamora, another in Tennessee, another in Ireland. It's scary. And here I am with my friend Morgan Freeman. Tell me, how did the offbeat idea come about in the first place? It's an offbeat idea. Well, I wasn't part of the uh, genesis for this show. Yeah. Uh, They start with the... um, Documentary department led by uh, by James Younger. Yeah. So and yeah, I have to admit to just being an itinerant worker here. <laughs> okay. But will this not give ideas to other criminals in some way? It could give you ideas if you're a criminal. It could give you ideas. It doesn't give you the wherewithal or the stamina or the ingenuity. Um. So I think everyone is 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 different. Every jail that you're in is different and trying to get out of it is going to take a whole lot of different types of thinking. So yeah, who knows? It could give ideas, but it that's it. Everybody has an idea. You go all the way back to I don't know. Well like the Mexican guy who who was who was doing 
the criminal stuff in, in Mexico. He had this long thing, this long dugout that was dug. I mean, everybody has an idea. But you went into jails. Tell me about, I mean, because you did Shawshank. So tell me about going into jails. What was it like for you? Where did you go? Well, for Shawshank, we were at the um, Mansfield, Ohio uh, Reformatory. But I have been in real jails with the, in like, the first one I was in, it was in Kingston, Ontario. Yeah. Uh, that, that is, uh, it makes your, your hands sweat. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's not that you won't be able to get out of it, uh, that they won't, but you don't know what's going to happen while you're there. I've been in some where they say, don't talk to the prisoners. Well, the prisoner says something to you and he's not behind bars, he's going to say something back. Might get slapped otherwise. Why isn't he behind bars if he's the prisoner? Like on the in the in the in the block and in the, in the on the floor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what do they say to you? What did? But when they see Morgan Freeman, it has to be some sort of a high. What did they say to you, honey? It's a like, hey, yo, bro, what's happening? Hey, Morgan Freeman, hey, that kind of thing. Okay, and you, Nobody, what, what did you respond? You responded. Of course, yeah. Hey, how you doing? Okay, so that's not exactly a whole conversation, I guess. No, it isn't a conversation. You cannot have a conversation. Who's going to have a conversation? They say, don't do that. So you won't do that. Number one, you're moving. So they're moving you through. You don't have to worry too much about it. But you can speak. You can say hey back. Uh, I don't know. I was in someplace, maybe in Illinois. Yeah. And you go into this big block and it's just nothing but noise. So you think that everybody in this place is insane. Yeah. Well, that that's enough to make you keep your mouth shut. Were you not terrified going in? I, of course, you, you had people with you, but were you not terrified going into these prisons? Not really. No. Uh, I think the first prison I went into, as I said, some point that was in uh Kingston o- o- yeah. Ontario. Yeah. And I'd never been inside a living dale before prison. Uh and yes, I I was it was a bit trepidatious. It's safe as all get out, but still you're in a maximum maximum security area. And the people are in there because they need to be in maximum security. Yeah. So, and you're in there with them. Um, well, it's not your sentence, but still, I don't know. There's an aura about it all. Oh, of course there's an aura. But with today, with, with the police mentality and the anti-police mentality today, everybody's going to ask you the same question. Does this not aggravate the anti-police mentality? No, I don't think so. Uh, the... Uh, the anti-police uh, mentality that is burgeoning now has to do with cop on on the beat. It has nothing to do with the people who are have been incarcerated for, um, and we talk the maximum now, and yeah. not in jail or something. Uh, but the people who have been incarcerated uh, mostly accepted as being dangerous. Um, so I don't, I don't 
think that uh, this kind of thing is going to exacerbate the anti, anti-police uh, syndrome that's working now. That's due strictly to the cop on the street. Give me, give me a scene. Give me one scene that we can understand and we'll look for, of course, when it's on. But you di- you're doing so much with this. Give us a scene. Two things outstanding about uh, El Chapo's um, adventure. Yeah. First of all, he had the wherewithal. He had money and outside contacts. Yeah. He had money and inside contacts. Uh, and that whole uh, that whole adventure was aided by the fact that they had GPS positioning. That's how they could get such such pinpoint positioning underground as they dug him out. Uh, that's yeah. one off. There weren't any other. You can't think of any other uh, attempt that had that kind of technology. So, so they had this technology underground? Yes. Yes. So that. would would a person, a normal person watching this series know how to get out of jail if they were in jail? Would this teach them? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, this is not going to give you any um, tools. Yeah. Uh, uh, the most it can give you is uh, maybe incentive if you're in prison and you're going to be there for a while and your every waking thought is, I got to get out. Well, I think <laughs> I think that might be the case in a lot of instances. I think that might be the case. Does this give us ideas about how to prevent these escapes? Does it give the government or the the police ideas about how to prevent this? I think in uh, certain prisons, yeah, they change certain things, certain personnel, etc. In one episode, uh, I can't pinpoint it myself. But they enlisted uh, the aid of uh, one of the uh, staff, the prison staff, a woman. Oh yeah, she yeah, yeah. The prison. yeah, yeah. I think they've so, even had sex with one of the with with some of the keepers, and that has helped them. I remember that story. I know that. Okay. So, did any of them talk to you directly in any way? I understand that you weren't the green screen. I understand all that. But did any of them ever talk to you about their lives or? How 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 they're treated in in prison? No, I never had any contact with any of them. Uh, for one thing, uh, these stories were all pretty old. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and and, uh, and for those uh, those stories in which the uh, inmates got out, uh, except for Alcatraz, uh, they were pretty much all caught and brought back including El Chapo. So what did you do during the pandemic, my friend? Caved up. Then <laughs> they caved up. Uh, I bought a house on a golf course down on the Gulf Coast. Yeah. Played golf every day with just my companion and uh, stayed locked up. I got uh, all of my shots and boosters uh, in between, but I didn't mingle. How about you? 
Well, I just came from my booster shot, but because it was you, much as I want to lie down, because it's Morgan Freeman, whom I love dearly, I said, hey, I'll come out of a dying bed. This is, I just got the booster. <laughs> You're such a dear woman. <laughs> oh, please, please, oh, please. I remember many of our interviews and things like that, and it's it's just it's just great. And and tell me now, what are you going to do next, Morgan? We we I'm going to watch you. We're all going to watch you. The whole bloody world is going to watch you. What's going to happen after that? What are you going to do? Uh, I think I'm going to go and make a movie a little about an old man. Well, all the movies <laughs> I'm going to make from here are about old man. Well, I know you're not going to make a movie about a young man, honey. But what's it about? What are you going to do? What? Well, it's a guy who uh, I don't know. He's always on a because of the loss of his wife uh he gets mixed up with uh i don't mean negatively but the woman who is his caregiver yeah and he winds up living in her she has lost a baby she's like in her mid mid 30s she's lost a child it practically destroyed her and her her marriage yeah but there's a, there was a room dedicated to the child uh, that's never used. And uh, he winds up sleeping in it, staying in it. And I don't know. I think somehow that helps their the marriage of his caregiver and her husband. And uh, he winds up walking off and off the edge of a mountain. So they don't want you to ever breathe anything besides <laughs> the fact of great escapes, which means your jailers are taking you away. Forget it, Morgan. I love you to pieces. Thank you, Cindy. Love you back. Okay, babe. Thanks. Bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, listen, we're hearing about crime, trash in the streets, homeless, fights, robberies. There's poverty, inflation, fires, break-ins, CV, Subway horrors, floods, boob Biden, the bigger boob de Blasio, climate change, awful China, awful Russia, awful North Korea, more than awful Washington, D.C. So now, about life's prettier things. Jill Balding, who used to be an editor in Vogue, she has a new book called Luxury, a history. It's diamonds and demlers. It's porcelain roses. A mantle made of 45,000 feathers. It's some crystal staircase, plus a $36 million teacup. The book goes from Cleopatra to Kublai Khan. Someone catty. Definitely not me, because I'm loving and not catty. Someone might say another edition might include Jeff Bezos's unmarried girlfriend's wallet. So we go to Jill Spaulding. So, Jill, where did the concept of luxury actually begin? Back in the Stone Age, when? Stone Age, for sure. The Neanderthal walked 300 miles to get an ochre, a kind of yellow paint, to bring it back to where they lived to paint the shells that they put around their neck and to paint their raffia skirts. 
Really? How do you know that? I mean, you weren't around that long. I wasn't, but they found proof because they found the shells. <laughs> How did you learn all this? Because this is a huge book. Libraries, museums, talking to historians. Well, where did you get the idea? Seriously, this is a gigantic book. I got the idea because as a child, I traveled with my parents everywhere, and I was left in these hotel rooms, these grand hotel rooms, and I could never see all the beautiful stuff that they, <laughs> they were out to look at these glorious palaces. And I was sort of stuck there. Um, and I thought, well, I wonder what they're looking at. I wonder what these beautiful things are. And as I grew older and I was able to go to hotels for myself, I realized that these were just amazing places that were going to disappear, as they have been doing, by the way, and that I should uh, capture all this, uh, all the people, the glorious glamour. It, it's all going so fast. I thought, oh, I've got to catch this before it goes. Well, I read, well, I didn't read the whole book, but the book is gigantic. One, cha one chapter says, water is best, but gold shines. <laughs> Does this mean that the best luxury out of, in all time has been jewelry? It means that gold or diamonds or anything rare, any, any rare material, um, is a status factor. It's power. It's lording it over either another person, another town, another empire. What do you mean? I mean, in the days before they found gold? Bef well, what did they use? Before they found gold, they had other precious things. They had, well, the famous paint, the shells, the, their shells today that are still considered more valuable than gold. Where do you get these shells? Spondylus. <laughs> they're called spondylus. They're in Brazil. They're off the coast of Brazil. I mean, I have to schlep to Brazil if <laughs> I want to get a bracelet that's more valuable than something I bought in Cartier? Unfortunately, today you can have it sent to you. You just pay a good big check. <laughs> okay. Well, what about fashion? Where did it begin? This city and many other cities live on fashion, Paris, New York. But where did the concept of fashion begin? Fashion as we know it, designer fashion, is very modern. It's really after the courts, the great royal families disappeared. You had houses like Charles Worth, you had Dior, you had who began to design clothes. Before that, clothes weren't designed. They were luxury because they were full of gold thread. They were satin. They were very rare silks that you could, had to have brought from China. Uh, but they weren't actually fashion in the sense of what we think of today. You know, I, I, I'm going to ask like stupid questions because I don't understand. How did they begin with gold or diamonds or, or rubies. How did, how did this begin? They mined them, of course, when mining became possible. Before that, they had to pick them up from rivers, like jade was a very early luxury because you could just pick it up as it came down through China, through the rivers, um, and you could carve it. And it was the carving that made the jade more or less expensive or more or less rare. Uh, but later, when they discovered the technique of mining... Uh, they could mine gold and they could mine rubies, all sorts of precious stones. What about, seriously, I don't know, the amethyst, the rubies, the topaz, the, the, the emeralds, where, how do they find them? Where? Well, for instance, Golconda, until that mine was discovered, there was no such thing as diamonds being more valuable than emeralds. Emeralds were the most valuable stone and rubies that existed. But once they found this mine called Golconda, which produced these huge diamond rocks, and they figured out how to carve them, how to shape them, 
then suddenly diamonds took over in value because they were the rarest and they shone the brightest. Uh, but it was really over the centuries that these various stones were discovered, and it was not just the quality of the stone. It was very often they carved them. For example, the Indian Maharajas had the rubies carved with poetry on them, verse. Well, how big a stone can you carve a, a poem on? Sometimes they were as big as the palm of your hand. Tell me, I mean, I, I'm like a child because I love jewelry, but I don't understand. How did they learn to carve them? How, what are they made of? What, what is a diamond? What is a diamond? A diamond is a carbon, pressed carbon, pressed for centuries, millennia, so hard that it, it becomes a, a clear and if you carve it a certain way, it will shine. If you just leave it completely uncarved, it looks like a, a dull gray rock. So how can you tell? I mean, you're, a professional can tell. Yes. But how can a normal person tell if they're looking at a dull gray rock? No, they can't. You and I, if we'd pick something up in the ground, we'd throw it back. We wouldn't know. Well, how do they know if it looks like a dull gray rock? Because I it, mean, I've seen them. Because initially, the, someone somewhere... 2,000 years ago. No, it wasn't 2,000 years ago because it was only recently that the mines were discovered. But whoever first maybe scraped it or maybe uh, and realized that there was a, a shine, a glint. Okay, so if you're back a hundred, a couple of hundred years ago yes. and you're scraping it and yes. you see something to shine, yes. couldn't you think it's just another rock? How do you know diamonds or whatever it is, it is? Years and years and years of experimenting, of trying, of carving. of These craftsmen, we don't understand today. There are a few left, but very few. There's only one craftsman left who can carve diamonds, carve a very rare diamond, only one left. But in those days, these craftsmen, they, they carved stone like butter. They put, they put little gaps in these tiny uh, windows in these stone walls that today can't be reproduced. So they had the craftsmen who honed their skills over centuries. So can, in the next 200 centuries, there be more diamonds or more rubies or more emeralds? Is the world or the earth still making that? There are still, uh, possibly, uh, countless mines, but I'm not sure that diamonds and rubies and diamonds and uh, emeralds are going to be a luxury even 50 years from now, we seem to be slowly, slowly moving away. Now, I say slowly because the pink star, or the North, it's called the pink star, uh, $83 million it's sold for at uh, Sotheby's, is the rarest by weight commodity in the world. But I just see people moving towards luxury as privacy, luxury as an island in the Bahamas, owning an island, uh, things that are not that material. Um. Forget ugly divorces and prenups. How about sex, romance, love, <laughs> affection? Doesn't that figure into jewels and expensive yes. things? Yes. Oh, yes. There was a very famous, uh, uh, her name was Berry, um, uh, Francis I, the, the French king, uh, loved this mistress, Madame de Berry, and he would uh, shower her with gold until he tired of her and uh, found someone else, and he asked her to return all his jewelry that he'd given her, and she did, melted into ingots. Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> oh, how absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Will the earth make these stones in the next 500 million years? 
again. I'm not sure I understand how they got made in the first place. It's the pressure. I don't think they, they won't make more. It's the initial pressure of the Big Bang, whatever caused the universe uh, and the planet, uh, planets to form. Um, the pressure of all that uh, hard rock uh, squeezed together made them. And there's, I suppose you'd have to say there's a finite number, but you could dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and find more mines, except that we're destroying the Earth by, by creating these mines, because it takes something like 200 tons of rock to make a gold uh, artifact. So... Uh, we're moving away. These open pit gold mines are now considered environmentally uh, tragic, and uh, they're trying to stop all this. So they're trying to turn people away from some of these very valuable commodities into thinking other things are valuable. I'm talking to Jill Spaulding about luxury and about her book, which is all about luxury, a history. Will the earth eventually yield all of its emeralds and rubies and sapphires eventually? I think we'll be long gone by the time that happens. We will, but yeah. what, what about, I don't know about civilization. Uh, how much is there in the earth? Well, an infinite amount. They say that the amount of gold that has been extracted to this day would fill three Olympic swimming pools. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot to me. Say it again. What? The amount of gold that has been extracted since the beginning of time to make into artifacts or jewelry will fill only three Olympic swimming pools. So it shows you, I mean, there's, it's rare. It's rare, but there's more there. There's definitely more there. Are there certain areas that have certain other stones? Like India has, like rubies, and someone else has yes. emeralds. Brazil yes. has emeralds. Brazil has emeralds. What is that? Is that the way the earth was formed? Different deposits? It must be. There's an exhibition that just ended at the Museum of Natural History, which explains all I was there. That. I oh, saw it all. I it, saw it all. Wasn't it? The, the, it was all phenomenal. Fabulous. I saw it. Yes, except the the recent jewelry, the pieces they chose from Cartier and Tiffany were far less exciting than the ones that, that exist in the world that the Beyonce has or whatever. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor's Peregrina, that famous pearl that Richard Burton gave her, yeah. that you saw on the uh, worn by the King of Spain in the painting by Velázquez, that, to me, was ten times more extraordinary than what they showed of contemporary jewelry at that exhibition. But the rest of the exhibition was sensational, yes. Let's get to the facts. Who's got the Peregrina now? <laughs> it was sold for $11.5 million. I don't know. They didn't tell us who bought it at Christie's. Tell me, go, go back. You were telling me again before about this very thing, expensive thing that was sold for $85 million. Is the that? Pink Star. It's a pink what is it? diamond. What is it? Pink diamond. Found where? Do you know at anything? At Sotheby's it was sold. I don't know where it was found. It must have been, uh, it must have been uh, India, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Sotheby's sold it for what? For 81 point something million. Do we know who bought it? It was nobody here in, locally it, it, in New York. Well, maybe you could find out, Cindy. <laughs> I couldn't. Okay, okay. But lately, lately, with our lives, it's people who want to be important because of elections, but everybody wants to be important. That's how come VIPs got created. Is Are we the new jewels? Ah, what a very good metaphor. I think so. I think so. Although these new people, uh, they all have, they're all looking for status. And they're all looking for status through luxuries. The luxuries differ. I mean, Rupert Murdoch bought the Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal. That's a high luxury. Uh, Jeff Bezos not only bought the Washington Post, but <laughs> his blue origin is taking people into space. That's high luxury. So, uh, 
Yes, these VIPs, they're not looking for diamonds. They're looking for other kinds of status symbols. Did you ever notice that Jeff Bezos has not married this lady who left her husband and children for him? I'm so pleased. I I understand you. I think that was ratty to do. And so I am pleased, and I hope he doesn't ever marry her. Okay, okay, okay. I'm just feeling mean. This book is gigantic. It's huge. It weighs, what does it weigh? You know, I never weighed it. It weighs several pounds. Yes, it does. It's huge. It's gigantic. It's larger than a coffee table. It goes from Cleopatra (laughs) to DiCaprio. In it is diamonds, demlers, porcelain roses, a mantle of 45,000 feathers. What the hell is that? What are you talking about? Oh, that was Hawaiian, the Hawaiian king. He had a mantle. He had a, uh, we'd call it a cape today, uh, made of these tiny, tiny feathers. So the fact that there were so many of them uh, depleted practically. The bird became extinct, actually. Uh, But it was a status thing. It was a power trip to have that many feathers in your cape. He was the king and the king of Hawaii which was a very important civilization at the time. Where do you get those feathers? From what? Birds. From a goose? From a chicken? No, birds, little mammal birds. They're called mammal birds. Well, they were when they were alive. <laughs> they don't exist anymore. Okay, well, I mean... Okay, we're talking about a $36 million teacup? Yes. What are you talking yes. about? It's called the chicken cup. That's the, that's the craziest part about it. It's called the chicken cup. It's Chinese porcelain. It's extremely thin, so much so that you feel that if you squeezed it, it might break. And so that's what made it extraordinary that once this uh, Chinese collector bought it, uh, that he then had Sotheby's pour him tea in it. I'm hoping that the tea was cold. (laughs) Uh, Right there as a kind of statement because, and it really made him, he also has four museums by now in China uh, all with his own art, he and his wife that have collected. And uh, so that was a, a, one of those gestures that that uh, went viral and uh, made him famous in America. I mean, otherwise, who would have heard of him? Liu Yang. What, what, I never heard of him, even if he's famous. <laughs> what What is a $36 million? How do you quantify to make it $36 million? Rare. And what the hell is in this teacup? It's rare. Actually, it's unique. Uh, it's the way... It's the, the, the factory that made it. It's the uh, extraordinary detailing. It's the fragility that it's survived 200 years. It's the, uh, uh, all these factors combined to make it so precious. Yeah, because it's unique. That's why. Well, lots of luck. And I uniquely mean, beautiful. Somebody comes over, you, you don't give them some borscht and, <laughs> no. and a cup of tea in this. No, no. no, obviously. Wait, you also talk about you so many things. A staircase made of crystal? Yes, that was. FS, it's an, a company called Osler. They were an English company, actually. And they began making small crystal objects. They got bigger and bigger and bigger until they were making chairs. And they made a staircase for the Maharaja of Gwalior. Uh, only one, only one, uh, but many armchairs uh, for these maharajas. And each maharaja had to have a slightly bigger chair than the one before. Uh, and they still are, many of them are still in the palaces. What palace has a, a staircase made of crystal? Well, the palace of Gwalior, yes. I mean, the family. Do people fa- go up on it or do they put a carpet on it? What? what? <laughs> I haven't been, so I can't, I can't tell but you. But how do you there even find out about this? 
because it was well documented. They paid the inventory of Osler. First of all, they, they photographed them. Then the inventory showed what it was paid for them. And then, uh, and then it was known that these Maharajas topped each other trying to get better and better, bigger and bigger crystal uh, furniture. Listen, I don't understand because the people I visit don't have these kind of things. I've been to your house for dinner. You don't have any of this stuff. I do not. Nothing. And what about, tell me about the life of Cleopatra and Kublai Khan. They lived very heavily. Yes, well, look, Cleopatra was all about status. She was all about power. First of all, she had to show Rome that she could compete and, in fact, could dominate, which she did for a while until we know what happened. Um, But she was the first to... Uh, put silk sails on her barge. It was uh, silk wasn't known in the West, and she managed to get it imported, and not only imported, but didn't make a dress of it. She made sails, huge sails, purple sails on her barge, and that's why the Romans suddenly all had to have silk, and it became a, a huge Roman luxury. Uh, she was amazing. I mean, she she started a cosmetic industry. She was the first person who had an actual industry of cosmetics. On an island, and uh, as you know, she wore heavy makeup. We don't know if it's because she was less than beautiful, which is what one of the uh, historians claims, uh, or whether just that that was the fashion. But um, so she had her own factory. She made the cosmetics she wanted, and they were extracted, all of them in those days, from precious minerals, from jades, from uh, all different kinds of, of uh, materials that she would, that were extracted from the ground, or the juice of beetles, of all things, <laughs> to get the red. You know, the Queen of Thailand, not easy to get this in a conversation, but as long as you're talking about beetles, the Queen of Thailand has been a friend of mine for a thousand years. She gave me a gold beetle with diamond, diamond eyes oh. and wings made of jade. But she said, a beetle has the longest life of any insect and what she was wishing me was long life. Is there something infamous about a beetle? Well, it was for that reason. It was it was a symbol of luxury because, yes, long life was the greatest luxury you can wish somebody, really. Okay, what about, well, I'm thinking of some of the others who must have lived very high. Kublai Khan? Kublai Khan had Xanadu. They called it Xanadu. He built an entire city. And this city, according to Marco Polo's history, which has been actually documented as being 80% true, uh, was really uh, built as a power statement. He wanted to, uh, the Mongols were new to China, and uh, they had to dominate. They had to convince the Chinese that they were powerful, cultured, uh, uh, had reach. And so he built this city that according to Marco Polo, just every fa- every part of it was a luxury, whether it was the stonework that was carved so closely, whether it was the, the meals that were served in the dining areas that were uh, gold tablecloths and cloth of gold was a very big deal. Um, the hunting, he organized these hunts that would go all through the land uh, on great uh, the backs of elephants uh, where uh, he'd, he'd put up tents in the middle of nowhere that were ermine-lined, and it was really quite extravagant. Okay, since I'm not going to get anything ermine-lined from you, <laughs> and I'm not going to get a crystal chandelier, I'm going to say thank you, know? you, Jill Spaulding, for coming here. You were adorable, and I oh, love you. Cindy, it's a treat. You are a national treasure. <laughs> thank you, honey.
All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. So I'm going to tell you about New York. Every 6 a.m., New York City delivers a fresh production, not inside a theater, outdoors, rain or snow, Union Square Green Market. It never closes, even if the city closes. There are farms like one puts root plants in springtime and told me strawberries need a 100 days. Well, they last that long in my refrigerator. Bread Alone Bakery, that's what it's called. They hung a sign out. It said, all sorrows are less with bread. They start baking at 3 a.m. And at 6.30 a.m., they schlep in to have their stall at the Union Square Green Market. They have rye, baguettes, multigrains, sandwich types, and nearby were 300 perfect, unblemished, shiny, gorgeous pumpkins. My face should look this good, announced the grower who schlepped in from upstate at 2 o'clock in the morning. Pumpkin pie, pumpkin soup, even dogs can eat pumpkin. I can't see my lousy little Yorkie eating a pumpkin, but that's what she said. The idea began in 1976 with a few farmers, and now, give or take a sprig of fennel, it's maybe 80-plus daily crowds of housewives, restaurateurs, chefs buying fruits, fish, meats, veggies, cheeses, jams, flowers, ciders, pickles, Mexican yams, whatever the hell that is, sapotrophic mushrooms, and probably a partridge in a pear tree. Low-income communities in the five boroughs number 50 such markets. So there's one that had 1,200 animals. They came in from Hyde Park, not with the animals, but they sell to a distributor 90% of their sales, and the rest of it, the bones, go for dogs, treats, for pets, and the rest of it. Their bison, I said, what do your animals eat? Their bison eat hay. Their ostrich, who sells ostrich? Their ostrich like corn and alfalfa. What do you give the chickens? We make our own food for the chickens. I have to tell you that this is something everybody should see. There are different flowers that make different honey colors different times of the year. The bees make different honey colors. At 645, one customer named Beatrice, who ID'd herself as I own a little hole-in-the-wall restaurant called Il Posto Acanto. She says, I come here. This happy place is my life. And then I saw her schlepping to a fish place where she was looking for some red shrimp to serve with beets. Listen, you can get Darjeeling tea, Earl Grey, caffeine-free, ginger, herbal, rose, lemon, dandelion, rose tea, eggs came in in carts, in crates, in trucks full of... Who has that many chickens? I have never seen sapotrophic mushrooms or stuff from five different cideries. Enough. You're in luck. Go see it and then leave me alone or invite me for some food. 
Listen, I have to go now. They're going to throw me out, so I have to go. I have to say thank you for listening, everybody. I am Cindy Adams of the New York Post, and I'm here again next Sunday, same time, same station. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com.